On a warm summer night, residents in the town of Villisca, Iowa, blissfully fell asleep. Unaware, this would be the last good night's rest they would have for a long time. The next morning, the horrific news broke. A well-known local family, the Moors, plus two of their overnight guests, had been murdered in their beds as they slept. One night, eight murders. It became the most notorious case in Iowa history. It threw the small town into a panic. The close-knit community had never seen anything so brutal. Was this a serial killer? Or was the murderer a resident of Aliska? Neighbors started turning on neighbors. Everyone in town was a suspect. And despite years of investigations, multiple grand jury hearings, and a murder trial, the case remains unsolved. And today, the Velisca Axe House still stands. After the crimes, a number of families moved in, but no one stayed for very long. And this murder house with such a dark and mysterious past quickly attracted rumors of a haunting. Visitors reporting an overall feeling of dread inside the home, hearing strange sounds, disembodied voices, seeing apparitions, shadow figures. One man spent the night at the house and ended up in the emergency room. We'll get to that in just a bit. The Velisca Axe House frequently ranks in the top 10 list of most haunted places in America, with the paranormal accounts to back it up. It's debated whether the house is haunted by the victims of the murders or by the killer himself. Today, we have an unsolved case and a horrifying haunting all in one, as we're discussing the murders and haunting of the Velisca House. Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross. Make sure you're following along wherever you listen to Avery After Dark. And if you enjoy this show, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Now let's jump into today's case and haunting. The small town of Villisca, Iowa was a peaceful, safe, friendly place to live. It had just over 2,000 residents and was a bustling railroad town meaning more than two dozen passenger and freight trains stopped at the depot daily. The town had several hotels, restaurants, businesses, and theaters. One of the town's most prominent businessmen was 43-year-old Josiah B. Moore. He owned and operated the Moore Implement Company. Josiah was a family man. He lived with his wife, 39-year-old Sarah Montgomery, and their four children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and five-year-old Paul. They lived at 508 East 2nd Street. The two-story White House was originally built in 1868. The Moore family purchased the three-bedroom home in 1903, and it made for the ideal place for them to raise their children. Josiah, many calling him JB, and his wife Sarah were very well-liked in town and were active members of the Presbyterian Church. Locals and neighbors said the Moors were nice, friendly, and helpful the kind of family that everyone liked. It was a warm summer evening, June 9th, 1912. The Moore family attended a special service at church with family friends named the Stillingers. The annual get-together was called the Children's Day Program, an event which Sarah had coordinated. That evening, 10-year-old Catherine invited 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and her 8-year-old sister Ina May for a sleepover at the Moore's house. The two Stillinger girls agreed, and after the program ended around 9.30 p.m., the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters walked back to the Moore's house, arriving sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. That night, Josiah and Sarah went to sleep upstairs, their four children in a room down the hall, and the two Stillinger girls on the first floor in the guest bedroom. 
The next morning, the Moore's neighbor, a woman named Mary Peckham, woke up early and noticed that the Moores weren't outside taking care of their regular chores. Their house, usually rambunctious with children running around and Josiah and Sarah tending to their tasks, was eerily quiet. Mary then began to hear the restless neighs of the Moors' horses and felt that something was wrong. So she walked over to the Moors' house, knocked on the front door around 7 a.m., but there was no answer. She tried the doorknob and found it locked. She then went back to her house and called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. Ross arrives shortly after. He too begins knocking on the front door, shouting for the family, hoping to awake someone inside. But again, nothing. He then pulled out his copy of the house key and entered the Moore's home as Mary stood on the front porch. A few moments later, Ross returned and told Mary to immediately call the sheriff. Inside, Ross saw that the entire Moore family had been murdered, as well as the two Stillinger girls, all bludgeoned with an axe while they slept. Eight people murdered in their beds. The Villisca City Marshal Hank Horton quickly arrived, followed by a group of police officers. In time, the coroner, a minister, and several doctors had toured the house and inspected the bodies. They found the axe used, the murder weapon, had been left by the killer in the guest bedroom where the Stillinger girls were. And police found that it belonged to Josiah. News spread through town quickly, and it didn't take long for neighbors and curious onlookers to gather outside the Moore house. Shockingly, after police searched the home, more than 100 gawkers were allowed to walk through the Moore's house, with the eight victims still inside traipsing through the blood-spattered crime scene, many actually picking up and holding the murder weapon, the axe. Nowadays, this is unimaginable. Crime scenes are preserved, but this was before it was standard procedure to secure and block off a crime scene. Also, the town was so shocked and horrified about what happened, they wanted to see for themselves. But in this case, these murders became a spectacle, and it's very possible that the killer could have come back and toured the home the next day, seamlessly blending in with the crowd. So how did the killer enter the home? Investigators initially theorized that the murderer removed the screen to a first floor window and entered sometime that night. But later, a far more sinister theory began to circulate as many detectives believed that it was far more possible that the killer was hiding in the attic, lying in wait for the family to fall asleep. This is because numerous cigarette butts were found in the attic, which gave a clear picture that the killer waited up there for a period of time. Doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. The Moors believed to have been killed first, Josiah was bludgeoned more than the others, and he was the only one who appeared to have been attacked with the axe of the blade. He also received more blows than anyone. The others were killed with the blunt end of the axe. The scene was brutal. The attack, vicious. Bedrooms and ceilings showed gouge marks made by the upswing of the axe. After being killed, all of the victims' faces were covered with bed linens or clothing. All of the curtains in the house had been drawn, and the two windows that didn't have curtains had been covered with clothing. Also, the mirrors in the home were covered by the killer. And given that the axe was found in the guest bedroom, police believed that the Stillinger girls were the last to be killed. Additionally, it appeared the killer attempted to wipe off the axe. What was the motive here? 
Robbery was out of the question as investigators found Josiah's pants hanging on a bedpost in his bedroom. Inside was cash, a check, and keys. All of the victims appeared to have been killed in their sleep, except Lena Stillinger, who had a defensive wound, a cut on her arm, indicating that she had tried to stop her killer. Now here's where things go from horrifying to downright bizarre. Investigators found that the killer left a two pound slab of raw bacon, carefully wrapped in a dish towel, in the guest room near the ax. This hunk of meat, presumably taken from the Moore's refrigerator. Also, a pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table, near a plate of uneaten food. Then the killer left, locking the door behind him. No one in town had ever seen or heard of anything so heinous. Initially, most were convinced that this had to be the work of a deranged, transient stranger, someone who blew into town, many expecting to find this killer hiding somewhere in the area. Searches were conducted of neighboring farms, barns, sheds, outhouses, eventually branching out and looking through city alleys. But nothing. They didn't find their deranged killer. And that Monday night, the town was convinced there was a madman on the loose targeting families, no less. So neighbors partnered up with neighbors, taking turns standing guard with shotguns. Residents in Villisca were nailing their windows shut, searching their homes from top to bottom, making sure that the killer wasn't hiding somewhere in their house. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. In the coming days, every lock in town was sold out. Residents walked around carrying weapons. Overnight, Velisca transformed to a place where the fear was palpable. Neighbors began to look at each other suspiciously, wondering if the killer wasn't some passerby. Could they be hiding amongst us, blending in? Was this murderer a member of the community? It completely changed this town. People started pointing fingers, accusing each other of acting strange, questioning their whereabouts the night of the murders. Within the week, Velisca was covered with detectives and newspaper reporters. Bloodhounds were brought in. Police and law enforcement from neighboring towns and states arrived to help track down the killer. With this being 1912, there was no central criminal or fingerprint database. Modern forensics, such as DNA analysis, simply didn't exist yet. And also, the crime scene had been completely destroyed, contaminated so detectives had to rely on their own investigative skills. One individual that was initially looked at was a man named Andy Sawyer. Andy was a transient who moved from job to job and had been temporarily employed at the Burlington Railroad. Thomas Dyer, the crew's foreman, was highly suspicious of him and went to the sheriff on June 18th. According to the real crew, the morning of the murders, Andy purchased a newspaper which headlined the crimes and was very interested in the killings. The crew also said that Andy would sleep with his clothes on, ready to make a quick getaway, and supposedly always kept an ax nearby. They described him as a loner and coworkers were very uncomfortable as they claimed Andy continuously talked about the murders and whether or not a killer had been ID'd or apprehended. One foreman said that Andy told him he was in Villisca that Sunday night and was afraid he may be seen as a suspect, so he left town. Andy Sawyer's name came up frequently in grand jury testimonies, but he was eventually dismissed. 
as it was found he wasn't in Villisca the night of the killings. He was actually in a neighboring town, and this alibi was airtight as he had been arrested for vagrancy at 11 p.m. that evening. So why he told others he was in Villisca is a mystery. Another theory was this could be the work of a serial killer. The previous year, in the fall of 1911, a string of gruesome murders shocked the Midwest. Whole families were slaughtered in their beds every two weeks without any apparent reason. Two families in Colorado Springs in September, another family in a small town in Illinois two weeks later, and the Showman family murders in Ellsworth, Kansas on October 15, 1911. And another similar murder occurred in Paola, Kansas on June 5th, just four days before Villisca. Now this leads to Henry Lee Moore, no relation to Josiah. He was thought to be a serial killer. Henry was tried and convicted in the murders of his mother and grandmother with an ax. He was also suspected in the killings I just mentioned. The cases were really similar, but nothing was ever proven. Without anything definitive, this theory was largely forgotten. As police continued trying to ID their killer, Villisca residents were turning on each other. Lifelong friendships were ending. With no one else to suspect, people in town took it upon themselves to track down the killer. Fear really worked on the community, and every day that passed, things grew more tense in Villisca. Another suspect that investigators first looked at was close to the Moors, Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder. Lee was Sarah's sister's ex-husband. Lee had previous run-ins with the law and family said that he was prone to violence, one account saying that Lee had threatened to kill Josiah. Detectives looked into his whereabouts the night of the murders, but he was eventually cleared. Some theorized that the killer knew the family, many pointing to the fact that the victim's faces were covered. When a killer covers the faces of their victims, it can mean that they know them on a personal level. This can be done in an act of remorse, an attempt to emotionally undo the murder. Out of guilt and shame, they cover up the crime, literally. So would this indicate that the killer knew the Moors personally? Also, something else that really stuck out to me was this idea of the killer covering the mirrors in the house. You have to wonder, did they not want to see themselves committing the crime? Or there's another possible angle to this. In that time period, when a death occurred in a home, people often covered mirrors and closed curtains. This was all a part of the mourning process. The tradition of covering mirrors has various cultural and religious beliefs. Some believe that when a person dies, their spirit might become trapped in the reflective surface of the mirror. So by covering it, it was thought that the spirit would be released and could move on peacefully to heaven, the afterlife. There's also a creepier superstition that spirits can be disturbed or angered by their own reflection, so mirrors were covered to prevent a deceased spirit from seeing itself and becoming vengeful or angry. But for many, they did this primarily as a sign of respect, a way to honor the deceased. It was customary for those who were grieving to cover mirrors and windows and oftentimes dress head to toe in all black. We still do this with funerals, many choosing to wear all black or dark colors. But in the 1900s, people went into mourning for a significant period of time. This meant wearing black, withdrawing from all social events, quiet, respectful behavior, so taking all of this into account, it sticks out to me that the killer covered all the reflective surfaces in the home. Covering the windows is one thing. Maybe he didn't want a passerby to see him in the house. But the mirrors? 
That is strange. Overall, investigators really had a hard time determining motive in this case. We know that the Moore family was very well liked in Villisca, but detectives began asking around, was there anyone who didn't like Josiah or his family? And many came up with one name, Frank F. Jones. Jones was a prominent businessman and Iowa State Senator. Before Josiah opened his own business, he actually worked for Frank Jones for a few years as a top salesman at Jones of Villisca, a hardware store. But in 1907, Josiah left his job and started his own company, a competing business. He took the coveted John Deere franchise with him. After all this, it was said that Frank and Josiah became enemies. Frank upset that Josiah set out on his own. Tensions were so high between the two that by 1910, they wouldn't speak to each other at all and would cross the street to the other side if they saw each other. There was also a rumor in town that Josiah had an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law. So clearly there was a lot of tension between these men about business and possibly personal affairs. But it was hard to believe that this kind of business feud could result in this heinous of a crime. Surely the men disliked each other, but eight murders in one night? This was truly evil, but it was a lead. So investigators wondered, would or could Frank be involved in the murders? Is it possible that he murdered Josiah and his entire family over a years long work dispute? Frank had money and was through and through a businessman. Investigators didn't believe that he himself would murder eight people in cold blood, but they did believe he could have hired someone to do it. Detectives began looking into a man named William Mansfield after someone called in a tip nudging investigators to look into the idea that Frank hired him to murder the Moore family. William Mansfield was a meatpacking plant worker and a union organizer from Chicago. Years later in 1916, Mansfield was arrested in Kansas City and was extradited to Iowa to face a Montgomery County grand jury. But in the end, the jury refused to indict him because his alibi was solid. Frank Jones went on to lose his re-election as a senator and was never charged with any crime. And there was someone else who investigators looked into, Reverend George Kelly. George was an English-born traveling minister who just so happened to be teaching at the Children's Day Services at the Presbyterian Church. So he knew the Moore family. He was described as a peculiar man, people saying he was tiny, nervous, and bird-like. He reportedly suffered a mental breakdown as a teen, and as an adult, he had been accused of peeping and asking young women to pose nude for him. He also had a reputation for being unbalanced and left town between 5 a.m. and 5.50 a.m. the morning of the murders, just hours before the bodies were discovered. Investigators learned that in the weeks following the killings, he displayed a fascination with the case and began writing these really strange, long, rambling letters to police, investigators, and family members of the victims. One of these letters was sent to a particular PI and he wrote back to Kelly asking for details that he may know about the murders. Kelly reportedly replied with a lot of detail, claiming that he heard sounds and possibly even witnessed the murders. Authorities questioned whether he was involved or just imagining this due to his mental state, as people said he did have a history of making things up. 
But some in town did say that they saw Kelly watching the Moore family while they were at church and around town. They also learned that Kelly was left-handed, and police determined from blood spatter that the killer must have been left-handed. And his strange behavior continued. During his next preaching visit to Villisca two weeks after the murders, he arranged to visit the Moore's house and see the scene of the crimes. Detectives continued looking into him and they found that he had been seen peeking into a woman's bedroom just days before the murder. And in neighboring towns, many residents said they would see him roaming around late at night. Many who came into contact with Reverend Kelly said that he seemed disturbed mentally, making unsettling comments. And there was also reports of a bloody t-shirt he sent to be laundered the weeks after the murders. And eventually, Kelly was arrested in April 1917. And after a long evening of interrogation, he confessed to the murders. He claimed the night of the killings, he couldn't fall asleep and went for a walk, during which he spied on the Stillinger girls getting ready for bed through the window. With the confession from him, police thought they had their killer, but the jury didn't believe him. And after two separate trials, he was acquitted. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. It seemed like some people believe that George Kelly was the killer. Others still believe that Frank Jones had something to do with it. Over the years, everyone in town became a suspect at one point or another. But some believe that the true killer was still out there and not one of the men that police pursued. This individual possibly still living in Villisca. You may be saying, with the number of victims, is it possible that there were two killers there that night? Many believe this is true, but the killer or killers seem to get away with it, as this case remains unsolved to this day. Over the years, police failed to find a credible suspect in the killings, and in the end, investigators and police seemingly gave up on the case. They had exhausted funds and resources. But the Moore's house, commonly referred to as the Velisca Axe Murder House, still stands. After the killings, the house changed ownership numerous times until Mr. and Mrs. Darwin Lynn purchased it in 1994. At that point, the house was nearly condemned, but the Lynns worked to restore the house to its original condition, complete with decor from 1912. So when you step inside, you are transported straight back to the night of the murders. It's been added to the National Register of Historic Places and is open for tours. You can even stay the night. And the place is haunted. No surprise there. It consistently ranks in the top 10 most haunted places in America. The old wood frame house looks like any other on the block, but it has an ominous feel. The Velisca Axe House stands today as a place where the line between the living and the dead becomes blurred. There is no shortage of paranormal activity here. Countless reports of unexplained phenomenon. Previous visitors saying they've seen the shadow figure of a man with an axe standing at the foot of their bed. Closet doors will open and close on their own. Eerie sounds, giggling, screaming, and a strange fog that moves from room to room when the train passes through town. Those who tour the house say the attic has a distinct feeling of evil. The same place many believe the killer hid waiting for the family to fall asleep. In June 2009, a visitor came to the Velisca house to investigate. There, he attempted to make contact with the Stillinger girls. 
in the room where they were killed. This man claimed that he specifically called out to the girls and asked them to turn his flashlight on and off. And he said they did so every time he asked. In 2014, the caretaker of the house, named Johnny Hauser, got the house ready for an overnight stay. A man in his 50s arrived. Johnny stated that he noticed he was carrying a large hunting knife on his belt. Johnny got him situated, checked in, and then left for the night. The next morning, Johnny heard that the man, who was supposedly in the house alone, had been stabbed in the downstairs bedroom the evening before. This man laid there until he was eventually found and he miraculously survived. This knife was found stabbed in his chest. Officially, his injuries were labeled as self-inflicted, but this man claimed that all he remembers from that night was, quote, entering the bedroom with the goal of provoking the spirits, end quote. And the next thing he knew, he was in the emergency room. Another strange detail, the axe that was used in the murders was discovered in the very room this man was found in. So did this man become possessed that night? Many don't believe that a ghost, an entity, could stab him, but it's thought that the house and its energy can have a dangerous effect on people and their mental state. On another occasion, Johnny, who always labeled himself as a bit of a skeptic, said he had a terrifying encounter in the kitchen. He said one day he was at the house. He had gone upstairs and was in the kid's bedroom, but before heading up, he had locked the kitchen door so no one could enter. He said that while he was upstairs, he distinctively heard someone walking through the door. He was so certain that someone had come inside the house that he decided to pull a prank on them. So he runs over and hides in the children's closet, waiting for this individual to come upstairs few moments pass. He then kicks the door open, screaming, but there was no one in sight. Johnny said, quote, as soon as I see there's nothing, it just sucked the air like I got the wind kicked out of me, end quote. While some believe the house is haunted by the victims, others think it's haunted by the killer himself. One medium said she picked up on the energy of the killer inside. Despite extensive investigations and numerous suspects, the Velisca Axe murders remain unsolved. And the Moore House is infamous for the gruesome events that transpired within its walls. To this day, the Velisca Axe murders remain one of the most perplexing and haunting unsolved crimes in American history. An unknown killer stole the lives of eight souls that summer night in that small town, forever scarred by the events of that evening. This really is one of the most heinous cases we've covered on Avery After Dark, and it's safe to say I will need a nightlight tonight. How about you? I so appreciate you taking the time to join me for this episode and look forward to next time. Until then, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark. <laughs>